Annie, thanks for coming on. It's about time. I truly appreciate this, though. Absolutely, Mike. Always happy to to talk about the case to somebody who really appreciates all of the the details. So I, I do. But where are you calling me from? Uh, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This the the site of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. So here I am. You know, everything on the internet you read is true. Uh, word around town is you're a New York girl. Can you confirm these rumors? <laughs> That's the rumor word, word around town. It's true. It's true. I was born in Flushing. Okay. Uh, at Flushing Memorial Hospital. And uh, and we lived uh, we lived in Flushing, Queens. And then we moved to Great Neck until I was about uh, 10 years old. And then we moved to Wisconsin. My dad was in the beer business. So for everybody who's a beer fan who remembers, they got to remember um, Rheingold, right? And Schmidt Beer, sure. So my dad went to the Brewers College that was in uh, in New York. And so that's how I ended up being born there. But love it. And I, I would go back in a hot minute if this was Harry Potter instead of Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> but it's not. So here I am. Crime reporter, author, international communications instructor, traveling the world, training police departments, and of course, one of the stars of Netflix show Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes. Annie, did I miss anything? I, you know, is if my father was alive, he would say, "Well, she can't hold a job, right?" That's the. <laughs> that's what it sounds like, but no, that's that's a pretty good compilation. Uh, each thing really did lead into the next, but it just doesn't always seem that way. You, we're going to get to the Dahmer stuff, the police stuff later, but you're living the dream right now. Can you explain the sick gig you have? Because I saw uh, pictures of you in Albania, North Macedonia. <laughs> you're traveling doing with other police departments. What exactly are you doing? Well, when I, I, I was a reporter for a long time. I was a reporter for 26 years. And after I left journalism, I went to uh, the Milwaukee Police Department and became their first civilian uh, commander of uh of their communications division uh but not communications in the dispatch sense but communications in the public relations sense so i built them a public relations operation nan haggerty hired me she's the first female chief there and she she just had this idea she had a crazy idea that if we bring in the the nosy blonde reporter but the one who always who the cops always liked she thought maybe that would be a good idea. So I came in and uh, and I was there for 10 years through uh, through both Nan Haggerty and then uh, Ed Flynn. So I had a wide breadth of experience, you could say. Now, weren't, uh, you, on the fo- wait, weren't you on the forefront of bringing social media to the Milwaukee PD? You were like the first person mm-hmm. like in any big city, right? Like, what made you think of that? Because now it's like, what department isn't putting pictures on Facebook or Twitter? But you were the first one to do that really, right? Man, brother, you stalked me or something. I'm a um, big yes. fan, Annie. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> uh, makes me wish I would have put more makeup on or done something with my wig. I don't know. Um, the uh, uh, Yeah, I, we were the first. Milwaukee Police Department was one of the first to bring social media to law enforcement. And it was scary, Mike, because if you think about it, it was like 2004, 2005, and... The private sector, which, of course, does everything before we do, uh, you know, was already using social media. They were using it to promote their brand. And the difference was is that we in law enforcement, we use that word branding all the time now. But back then, we didn't think of ourselves as a brand. But we should have. We should have been thinking about 
this uh, about our police department, the Milwaukee Police Department, the New York City Police Department. We should have been thinking of those things the same way that Coke and Pepsi and South, well, Southwest isn't that nice example anymore, is it? But uh, we were thinking of ourselves in the same way as those companies did. So why wouldn't we try to protect our brand in the same way that they did? So that's when we started using social media and we were on the forefront. Uh, I worked with people that were the public relations people for, um, I've got to remember everybody so I don't forget, but it was, it was actually, it's not that hard. It was a small, a small group. It was my buddy, Mary Grady, who was at LAPD at the time. Um, it was uh, my friend, Julie Hill, who was at Charlotte Mecklenburg. Uh, it was, uh, I mean, we were a real small core group, Portland, I can't, or excuse me, Seattle. Uh, the sergeant uh, who was there then, Sean Whitcomb, now has his dream job at PlayStation um, doing, I don't know, something that makes <laughs> him happier than talking to the media every day about police work. Um, but uh, but we, we had this idea and the chiefs were out of the, they were terrified because the chiefs were thinking, you know, not only is it bad enough that we're going to proactively share, but we're going to let comments. We're uh, going to allow comments. We're going to let the public say stuff. Well, about us. And then open records laws, as we found out, were going to prohibit us from deleting them. Unless, you know, you unless they were thought to, unless they were determined to be profane. So in the profile, I learned that you had to list everything that was profanity. So I listed everything that I decided was profanity, like brutality, incompetence. (laughs) Make sure people wouldn't put those things in there. People figured out how to defeat that system, but I was doing everything I could. But, you know, it was, but that was the start. I mean, if you think of where we've been since, you know, since 2004, 2005, um, we, you know, we have to tell our story. We absolutely have to get out there. We absolutely have to talk about what's going on. And it doesn't mean get out and, you know, completely take out your spleen with a melon baller in front of the entire world by giving them all the information on an investigation. But it means at least get out there. And and I think one of the things that we can we in law enforcement can do is uh, is teach people. We can do education. Nobody knows what we do. Nobody has any idea. <laughs> Nobody. They all think they know because they watch, I don't know, fill in the blank show that doesn't know. I'm going to I'm going to pick on CSI because we always do. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Mike. I have never worked with the guy that finds that one strand of hair in the shag carpeting in the dirty drug house. I have never, ever worked <laughs> with that person. You may have worked. You guys are a higher level. No, no, nev- not, never been close to that, Annie. <laughs> but nothing. And so I, you know, I would see that and I just thought, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Um, so that's the problem. And, and we've known that that's a problem for a long time, that people use those television representations, which are essentially movies. Mm-hmm. They're, they're made up movies. They're not documentaries uh, to to teach people what we do for a living. And it's hurt us because it gives people an unrealistic expectation of how police work is done. Right. I, that's I mean, that's what I think. I, I'm going to guess that you're you're there as well. You know, you you know, I loved it. I asked about it and you get you might be the best podcast guest ever. One question you gave that awesome, like well detailed answer. This is going to be real easy tonight. <laughs> my my husband would say that you ask her what time it is. She tells you how to make a Timex. So there it is. 
Any, you have to explain to me why a young Andy Schwartz volunteers or signs up to be the nighttime beat reporter in Milwaukee working late nights on Friday and Saturday night. Isn't there better things to do in the cream city than drive around with cops as a young reporter? There might have been, but you know what? I I loved telling stories. Always have. Always loved telling stories. It's what drove me to be a reporter. I wasn't, even though I came out of college right after the Watergate era, within a you know within about a you know five years of the Watergate uh, of Watergate, I still I didn't go in, into reporting with the idea that I was the accountability police. I didn't go into reporting with the idea that I was going to keep the big boys honest. That wasn't my goal. My goal was to get out there and to tell great stories. And I always thought that police stories were the best stories. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure I, I, I look like I'm, you know, Christy Brinkley in 22, but my childhood was, you know, Adam 12 and Dragnet and, you know, how sick is your kid when she's got a crush on Joe Friday, my poor <laughs> father? Be like, what? And it's an old guy. But, you know, <laughs> that was what I, that was the way that that, that was. I loved those shows and I love those stories. Um, so that's how, that's really how that starts is I want to be a reporter and tell those stories. And I, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out like, how do you break into that? How do you do that? Went to college like you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, worked in a, a couple of on newsletters when I first graduated from college. I went to Washington D.C. and then I went back to New York um, and uh, lived in in an apartment near Columbus Circle where you could sit on the toilet, cook dinner, yeah. and answer the door like all at the same time. And so I will never again complain about anything that is over like you know. 300 square feet. <laughs> um, but I love that. I loved, I loved those experiences. Uh, but my, my mom died in 1987. And so I came and I moved back home to Milwaukee and it's kind of funny, you know, you live in the big cities and you love that whole energy. And when you lose a parent and you come back to the Midwest, it just feels like this big warm hug, you know, all of a sudden everybody's showing up at the door with like those casseroles with the crunch. <laughs> crunched up potato chips on the top and there's like 20 of them, you know, in the fridge. And I mean, everybody's, you know, nice. And, and, and that's really why I think the Dahmer story was so shocking is because I moved back to the nice quiet Midwest, right? That's where I decided to go. And I, I, you know, I've loved it. I, I loved it here. And I got a chance at the former Milwaukee journal to, they took me on first as a stringer. So that meant you did any story about any dumb thing. And I went out and I was afraid to ask. I was not afraid to ask anybody anything. Okay. Um, I mean, it was uh, around that time when Nancy Reagan, we found out Nancy Reagan had been consulting astrologers. So I went and found some, you know, wacky astrologer in Milwaukee and went to see her and did this whole story about, you know, why do people come to astrologers? Um, and she made all these wild predictions about my life, none of which, you know, came true. <laughs> well, you'll marry and you'll be happy and have a nice, have a nice home. And, you know, not that, you know, you're going to find out about a serial killer, write a book, be known for that. Your father will, you know, die ashamed because <laughs> he sent you to great schools, including finishing school. And your expertise is a guy who killed, you know, 17 people ate a couple. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, this is not what Victor Schwartz had hoped for his princess, but yet 
you, you, you're doing so, ride-alongs, right? As this evening reporter, oh, you're yeah. like, and you're in yeah. the in, you're in the inner circle because you know, cop humor. It's that dark humor. You, you uh-huh. know that more. It's that. Did, were you taken back by that initially? Like, oh my god, they're making fun or making light of. Was it? Were you taken back a little bit? And again, I have to say, I was. I'm Victor Schwartz's daughter, so I am taken aback by nothing. Um, I had done that feature job, by the way, for a, a little while, and I just kept hounding the Metro desk to give me something. And when they had the weekend police beat, those enviable hours of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 3.30 or 4 p.m. until midnight or 1 a.m. And I'm like, yes, because I suppose I could have, you know, I suppose I could have had whatever life people were having outside of the building at that time in the nice neighborhoods. But you know what, Mike? I had a chance. I really had a chance to learn about policing. And I think one of the reasons that the uh, that the the police officers all took me in the way they did is because I, I wanted to learn. I was covering their department, which, of course, they immediately have to hate me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I said, teach me, show me, take me to something. And they took me and I went to see my first homicide scene. I threw up and it was like, she's in, you know, she's was, one of us. She's one of us. She's OK. And, uh, you know, it, it just kind of went from there. I I would also look for opportunities to do good stories about their families. Like if they had a, you know, a kid who'd done something, you know, amazing in, you know, in a sport, I would ask the sports desk if I could freelance a story about that. And they'd be like, yeah, go ahead, do that. So I, I did everything that I could to ingratiate myself with, uh, you know, with the officers. And I really wanted to learn. The ride-alongs were were amazing. It was it was the craziest thing ever for a nice girl, you know, who <laughs> went to Divine Savior Holy Angels High School. Uh, they still don't like having me for career day. They're like, "What are you going to talk about? Yeah. What do you think I'm going to talk about?" <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was a lot. It was a it, it was a lot to take in. But for me, and, and and you know what, Mike, I thought if I'm excited about this. If I'm like, wow, seeing behind the curtain is really cool, wouldn't other people feel that same way? And so that's when I just really thought that it was there was an opportunity to tell stories in a different way. It didn't have to be homicide of the day, fill in the blank, let's go. Um, but, you know, policing in the early 2000s, very different than policing today. Uh you know, and policing, very different than policing when I ended up working at the Milwaukee Police Department. And then I became the one that had to talk to the reporters. And I, they all accused me of, you know, Stockholm Syndrome. And I said, no, I said, I just understand now. I just get it now. And, you know, they don't like to hear that. I guess because you were so enthusiastic, your articles showed enthusiasm. Obviously, you gain the cops' trust. So take me to that fateful night because there's no FaceTime. There's no text messaging. There's no, hey, Annie, here's a picture of where we're at. They cold called you. And tell me how that call happened. I know you've told the story a million times, but how does that call happen? Are you thinking, oh, these guys are bullcrapping me? Like, tell me about that. Absolutely. Because you guys, I mean, (laughs) oh, please. You know, when Donna called me from prison years later when my book was coming out, Uh, Or a year later when my book was coming out, I absolutely thought it was some cop. But because of what happened to me the night of the discovery, I thought, eh, let's let's just go along with this this time. But uh, I got a call on my landline Uh, for the kids listening. That's a phone that's connected (laughs) to the wall. And uh, and I had a uh, I had a phone call from a source from a police officer. 
Uh, and the discovery had just been made. So the two police officers had just found the head in the refrigerator. They, they were starting to see the evidence of Dahmer's crimes as they went through his apartment. And as a result, then they um, they started to call for, you know, for more officers. You know, we know what a big deal the case was. And you know this from work in the street. But you don't know what it's the biggest thing to ever hit the world when you're standing there. All you know is you're, you know, you're sweating to death because it's July in Milwaukee and you don't you don't know much more. Um, it was clear that something was was absolutely wrong. But what the officer said to me on the phone was, Annie, you got to get over to 25th and Kilbourne. He said, there's a guy that's been saving body parts in his house. And it, it, and we found a head in the refrigerator. And, you know, so, I mean, it, it absolutely. Have, it, have they played, you know, jokes on me and done things like that in the past? Absolutely. But there was something in, in his voice. And I can say his because what, you know, out of 2000 sworn, we had like a handful of women. So mm -hmm. it's not like, a, you know, not giving that away. Um, but he said, uh, the, the, just the way he sounded, he sounded very, you know, kind of like gobsmacked, kind of shaken. So I went there because um, what else am I doing, you know, on a on a Monday night? Um, and I went over there and it wasn't my shift time, but I went anyway. You know, it, for a lot of reporters and a lot of people, if you, you know, if you decide to say, well, I'm off that day or I can't do that that day. I mean, I went on ride-alongs all the time on my own time. It wasn't on the newspaper's time. In fact, they didn't like me going on the ride-alongs on newspaper time because what if something happens? And I thought, well, what if something happens and I'm there? Yeah, you'll be there. You're uh, 4 seat. But, you know, the smarter minds than than mine, I guess. Um, but, uh, but I, I showed up at the, I showed up at the scene and it was very early, it was very early. They'd just taken Dahmer away in the squad. Uh, the two officers who I knew who had made the discovery are, are upstairs outside of, of Dahmer's apartment. Um, there are a couple squads there, but it's not the scene yet. It wasn't uh, the, the media circus yet that we always see. It wasn't no. the circus yet. Okay. Oh, goodness, no. No, it's like before midnight. The first media showed up probably two or three in the morning. I mean, I was there by myself. You got to remember that. How would people know? It's not mm -hmm. like somebody tweeted it. Of course, you're right. Um, you know, so the only way you'd know is if you had the old school, you know, scanners and maybe you heard chatter, uh, you know, on the on the scanner. The, the, the scanner, the airwaves were really quiet because nobody said anything over the air that night. Um, I think that the way other people ended up finding out about it is what I call Schwartz's axiom when I do my... Media training that three people can keep a secret if two are dead. <laughs> so, so I'm guessing that that's, you know, that that's kind of what happened. But um, I walked up to the apartment and uh, and I saw Rolf Mueller, who was the officer that made the discovery. And I'll never forget, there is a photograph that actually memorialized it uh, because he was standing in the hallway, leaning up against the wall, and he had both of his palms over almost his entire face and and it just he just looked i mean it was you could tell that that he had been through something and it wasn't like every other scene i mean we all have seen things that that you know give us a a glitch 
but this was something different. This was very different. So I went, uh, I talked to a couple neighbors outside. Well, well, that's why I, I want to cut you off because that was the okay. veteran move when I read about you because you went, instead of being, oh my God, let me be gossip person, check everything out. You were veteran reporter. Let me start doing interviews. So I want to ask you right away, you're, you're in reporter mode, which not many people would do. What was the initial reaction from people? Because you got them when they were hot. You know, two weeks mm -hmm. later, Annie, then they can sensationalize it or do whatever they want to do. Make the story about them. You went right to the source right away, struck while the iron's hot. So what was the initial reaction? Oh, uh, two weeks later, they're on Oprah, you yeah. know, and the story's like, what? Was I at that scene? Did I see what in the world? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a little crazy. Um, but no, I started talking to the, the residents. The scene itself, Mike, is something that was really crazy because I've been to, I mean, I've been to four years worth of, of crime scenes before I showed up at this one. And crime scenes kind of all have the same commonalities, right? Bunch of people, people are yelling. Um, sometimes the media is there. Sometimes it's just, you know, loud, crazy. Somebody's screaming at somebody. Uh, somebody's screaming at you. Um, but this wasn't like that. This was, this was so strange. I, I, I walked up onto the lawn and they'd evacuated the building from, for the residents. They'd gotten all the residents out of the building because of the big blue barrel that was in there. And they didn't know what kind of chemicals were in there. And the smell was bad. So there was a, they figured the police treated it initially like it was almost a hazmat situation, but they got everybody out of the building and, and some of the residents are, you know, in their robes and pajamas and things and they're standing outside the building. And it was so quiet. Like nobody's talking. Wow. Nobody's, I mean, it was, it was so strange. And there was a, at least a dozen people standing outside. And I mean, like nothing, it was just like these low whispers and, I started doing some interviews with, with some of the residents and I, I, you alluded to this when, when you asked me the, the question, the fact that these, I believe that those interviews are the first and last time that we got those really heartfelt, um, like raw emotions, right? Yeah. factual interviews from people because after the case became worldwide, now, all of a sudden, you know, everybody in their goat is like, yeah, I used to sit on the back steps and I smoked pot with Jeffrey Dahmer. It's like, you did not. <laughs> Just sociopathic. He didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, so that was uh, that was how that started. And then after I talked to a few of the neighbors, I went in the building. Remember, it's so early in the crime scene. And this is such an unusual crime scene. This isn't like, yeah, it's an armed robbery. Hurry up. You know, you kid, go put the tape up and, you know. This wasn't like that because the what was happening inside that apartment is that the officers that were there were discovering things that they had never even imagined. They were discovering Polaroid photographs of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims in various stages of dismemberment. They were discovering bodies because Dahmer's killing became so accelerated because that's what happens often with serial killers. They get sloppy, which is how they end up getting caught. Uh, but it became so accelerated that the bodies were quite literally stacking up in, in, in the next room. Um, there were skeletons in the closet that I mean, the, for, not metaphorically, there was this horrible blue barrel with, you know, with, with body parts in it. I mean, the, the things that these officers saw you know, it's not like somebody said, hey, better get the yellow tape across the door. I mean, who's thinking that? They're, you know, and 
And by the way, what's the you know crazy blonde reporter doing standing in the door? <laughs> I mean, nobody was saying that because I mean, I could have been standing there in a, you know, in a swimsuit. Nobody would have noticed. They were um, back in the days when that would have been something people would have looked at. <laughs> um, but they uh, they really didn't didn't notice me. I I stepped at the threshold and I looked around the apartment. And I got to tell you, it did not, it did not look, I mean, it looked like a single guy's apartment and, you know, no offense to single people who say I don't live like a pig, but uh, it was, it was pretty, you know, organized. It wasn't crazy. You have to remember, and this is important to say this because you got to remember that a couple months before police officers were in that apartment. And so, and, and I'm sure we'll get to that piece because that's important mm -hmm. to the story, but you know, I looked at this apartment and I don't see anything that screams Charles Manson lives here. So, you know, that I, I didn't know how important that observation would be later, but it would be when I talked about what law enforcement likely saw when they were in there. You have the story now of all stories. You go back to the newsroom. You're banging out. Do you call your boss? I always want to know the side that we, you know, we just read the paper. Do you call your boss and be like, hey, I got a story. You won't believe it. There's a head in the refrigerator. Because I think you were like the first person reporter that had his name out there. So you mm -hmm. had this story. Mm -hmm. How was your your boss? Was he like, go with it? Or, whoa, hold on. Like, is it, it must have been shell shock for him as well. The same way you got the call, he probably got the same crazy call from well, you. By the, time, by the time I got to the newsroom, you know, everybody's in the newsroom. Because the... Part-time, you know, the part-time, you know, girl with the, you know, who wears the leather pants in the newsroom did not, I did not dress like a homeless reporter. Um, they were like, you know, a lot of years ago, Mike, just so you know. Um, you know, the, I mean, these reporters were like, it's, you know, Schwartz, Annie Schwartz, that, you know, the one that, that, that runs around with all the cops all the time. And so once I got, you know, I got in the newsroom Everybody, I don't remember it this way, but another friend of mine who now has a, a sports talk show um, uh, on the game remembers being on the sports desk because the sports were getting, you know, sports are done done later and you got to stay in and do the scores and get every get all that stuff. So he remembers looking over and seeing me sitting at the at the desk with this phalanx of, you know, of, of editors standing over me like a scene out of a, you know, movie. Um, and there I am, you know, my little blonde head and I'm just typing away and, you know, it, and getting information. You know, I knew who to call to get confirmation on certain details. And the reason I knew who to call is because I'd ridden around in 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 those in those cars on those late nights when nothing happened and use that time to learn um i i sat in my share of of uh you know uh, station houses uh, you call them precincts out there here they're called districts i went to the the district stations and i would just go in and i would come in with pizza or i'd come you know come in with with whatever um that was how i got them to to know me and that's when that pays off because all those things build trust. And it wasn't phony. I never talked about who told me anything. There was a big investigation. There was, you know, you're nobody until you've been, you know, subject to an internal. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, you know, and they were trying to figure out who talked to me. And there's just, you know, there was, there was, I mean, I was getting copies of stuff. I had copies of the photographs that were in Dahmer's apartment. Um, of course, the 
cop that did it for me made the copies at a Kinko's where they have a camera in the store. So they're, you know, bah, uh, the, <laughs> you know, so I don't get in trouble, but he's, you know, parking, he's checking parking, you know, out yeah, in, yeah, I don't yeah. know where, um, but, uh, but I had a lot of that information and I, 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 you know, I never really, there's so many reasons why cops leak to reporters. Sometimes it's for self-aggrandizement. Sometimes it's like, this is the biggest story ever. And I'm not, I don't have a part, a piece of this case. So I'm going to, you know, have a piece of this case by giving her everything or, you know, they just, everybody likes to tell a good story. Everybody likes to tell a good story. Think about how it feels when you sit with a group and nobody in that group is, is a cop and you start telling some kind of story <laughs> and you think it's just the dumbest thing ever. And they're just like, wow, really? You know, and, and that's, that's really how I, I think people felt is that these guys knew something so incredible and, and they shared it with me. Uh, I confirmed that information. I also, you know, got the medical examiner's information. I knew that they were doing uh, dental so that they could try and identify these people. Because it's one thing to have, you know, all of this evidence. And it's another thing to know who are all these people. So it became a really good story. And it was obvious from my stories that I was going to write it that way, that this was an incredible investigation. Um I was going to write it that way and did up until uh, the time when it was revealed that two officers had been in Dahmer's apartment with uh, a, a young victim who was a young man who was later one of Dahmer's victims. Um, and after having a discussion with Dahmer, they they turned him back over to, to Dahmer. But uh, as I say in the book, you know, we, we don't give magic eight balls to officers to hang on the Sam Brown. I wish we did, but we don't. And nobody wishes that more than those two officers that were there that night. But uh, that's uh, how he, the story starts. That's... Yeah, and here's my question with it, because you actually, you know, you became the Dom, you're the Dama girl. You wrote the books, oh you did God, everything. Let me ask you something, because you were a young reporter. Were you? Did anyone try to strong arm you? Because the same way if a young detective gets a case, you might get a senior guy like, kid, I'll oh, take God. it. <laughs> yeah, and you help out and we'll do it together. Did anyone try to take it from you? Because I would think like, you know, the senior reporter, like, Annie, help out, you know, so-and-so. Did anyone try to like, oh, take it from you? absolutely. I was waiting wow. for somebody to ask me to go get coffee. I yeah. mean, yeah, it, it was, you know, there were there were two guys that had the day beat. So okay. day cops, that was the beat. You were there in the daytime. You wrote all the good stories. Then there was night cops. And then there was, you know, the poor schmuck who was, you know, there on the weekends. That was me. Um, and... These, uh, you know, they're, yeah, they, they were like, okay, we, you know, we got it from here. And there was a, there was an editor in the room and I'll never forget her, Carolina Garcia. I don't even know where she is now. I always say her name on podcasts because yeah. I'm thinking maybe somebody's going to say, Carolina, this person's talking about you. Uh, but she is the one that said, you know what? She had all the sources that got us this far. So she's going to be the lead reporter on the story. Not, you know, nobody's thrown me a party when that happens. Because uh, there's a lot of resentment. And I, I, I guess I didn't think about it in terms of the police department. But sure, it's the same way. You know, OK, you know, go go sit in the corner with gum on your nose and the pointy hat. And we're going to let everybody else, you know, do this, do the do the story. So there was an attempt by by other reporters and other reporters got pieces of the story. But they always had to come to me and coordinate and it had to kill them. 
because I had just moved back from New York. So I had, I had kind of a wicked fashion sense, can I just say? Um, and so, you know, they look at me and I was just, I mean, I was different. I just was, you know, was different. Um, so all of those things combined to make it kind of an unlikely scenario that I would be the one to get this story. You're there. You see the head. You, you see everything. You see the chaos, the cops being said, how the story just hits. But you haven't seen Dahmer yet, have you? Did you picture in your mind what he might look like? And what about – tell me what the first time you ever laid eyes on him or a picture of him. Mm -hmm. Well, I got his mug shot pretty early. Okay. Um, you know. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, but you know what? It's it's kind of like when you – you know when you're driving down the road and somebody's driving like a like a jerk and you – you just can't wait to pull up next to them. So you can like, oh yeah. You know, cause then you see who's, this was what it was like with Dahmer, you know, because Dahmer didn't look like, and I always use the Charles Manson reference because that's what I think of. You look at Manson, crazy eyes, yes. guy with a swastika carved in his head. Well, not okay. Dahmer, and, and that's the reason that serial killers get away with it for so long. Cause they look like everybody else. They can act like everybody else. They know how to blend. And when I first saw Dahmer, the first time I saw his mugshot was when I was working in the newsroom. Uh, and I got his picture and, you know, we're all, you know, kind of looking at it. And you're looking for something. You know, you're looking for something that says, oh, I would have never talked to that guy. Right. And it's it's not that. Um, the first time I saw him in person, it was it was really strange because he was. um he was in, he, he was walking into court. This was for his initial appearance. And all of us were just dying to see this guy. Like, what kind of a person? Because by then, more details are coming out. And it's like, what kind of a person, you know, can, you know, has done this? And Dahmer just kind of comes in, you know, kind of just lumbering in. Uh, that's the one thing that that they got right in the Netflix series, that they did um that ryan murphy did when he did the the i i didn't love that series because so much of it was untrue it was so clear that he had a bias against the police mm -hmm. um and that was how he put that story together but the way that 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 the actor portrayed Dahmer was very much like like Dahmer, where he was just sort of just kind of walking in and unassuming and he's the guy you wouldn't remember and we all just kind of looked at him like, really? Really? By then we knew the cannibal thing. It's like, what? You know, and he just didn't, he did not fit the mold. But again, that all, all of those observations go to why didn't anyone notice him earlier? I'm glad you brought that up. That was a perfect segue because you can't get into the mind of Dahmer. Do you think he strategically moved to that neighborhood? I know it was a high crime location. And, you know, um, statistically, a lot of they don't call the police as much. Do you think he went there just to blend in or he was just like, I'm living here or whatever? I think Dahmer, as, as they say about serial killers, people often say that they, um, they're, they're highly intelligent. And that was one of the things that came out when we were at his trial and they were trying to figure out, you know, if he could if he could cop to this insanity plea or not. And one of the things the prosecutor said is, look how smart this guy was. Look what look how smart he was. Um, yeah, I think he moved to that neighborhood. He was going to stick out because he was a white guy in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. All right. So, you know, but 
but he kept to himself. He didn't talk to anybody. Anybody who says that they had conversations with him is is got a problem with their memory because he was not that guy. Um, so I mean, in the in the the Dahmer thing in the in the movie that uh, that Murphy, Ryan Murphy did, you know, they've got him offering the neighbor a sandwich. Yeah. He does not did not do that. Uh, he didn't. He just he didn't talk to anybody. So the um, you know it, it was just a. I'm I'm trying to think of the of the of the best way to to kind of, you know, portray it. But but seeing him for the for the first time was not what anybody expected, and what would happen later is that we would kind of you know we would find out how deeply all of this stuff you know all this stuff ran. So, and because I'm aging right in front of your eyes, I. I kind of forgot your question. You have to go back. <laughs> Did he strategically pick to live oh. in that neighborhood, do you think? Yeah. Well, sure, I do. Because it was the kind of place where uh it was it was the highest crime area in the city. So it was they had that was happening. It was largely um you know, there was so much violent crime that it's not like the neighbors are gonna pick up the phone and say there's noise. I mean, that was something else in the movie that was yeah. not correct. The, the neighbors were not calling them. They didn't call the police. They didn't care what you're doing. They don't want to know what you're doing because they don't want you to know what they're doing. No, I mean, you know, it was just, it was that kind of a, that kind of a deal. So, oh. yeah. But, but yeah, I think that he, I think he chose a, a low income neighborhood because he had to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were other places he could have lived if he didn't want to spend money. But I think he went to a place where he could just kind of, disappear i listened to or read something you wrote that he strategically picked his um victims oh. by asking them can you explain that because when i heard that i'm like how is that not talked about because I, I got chills thinking about that can you explain that because i that blew me away and I, I remember everyone at work when they watched Dahmer. i'm like you know uh he chose his victims they're like what i'm like well he did some research i felt smart but can you tell me because that was like bone chilling. Mm-hmm. I'm helping you, but really, this is just a ruse for you to be popular at work. I get that's because I'm very unpopular, and, so this is huge. <laughs> and that's fine. That's fine. Uh, whatever I can do, whatever I can do. Um, yeah, I mean, he would he would almost interview his his potential victims. So he comes into the bar and he sits at the bar, and there were there were just a, there was a, a district in the city of Milwaukee at that time. That was all the gay bars. Okay. So it's not like he went to straight bars trying to figure out if somebody in there was gay. He 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 wasn't, that was not his his deal. His deal was go to, to the gay bars, sit at the bar, and have conversations with people that he was attracted to. We'll start with the fact that he was attracted to men of color who were slim but very, very muscular. He didn't hate black people, he didn't hate Hispanic or Asian people. That was what he was attracted to. All right. So that's important. So he's talking to these people. And what happens is as he's talking to them, he's asking them, so what was it like when you came out to your family? You know, what was what's, what was that like? And the person would say one of two things. If the person would say, oh, man, you know what? It was I'm, it was, I'm blessed. That was it was, it was, you know, it was tough at first, but, you know, we're pretty close. Talk to my sister, blah, blah, blah. Dahmer would, you would not be a victim. 
because Dahmer was looking for people who he thought would not be missed. And when he talked to somebody who said, yeah, I haven't seen my family in, you know, months and I got thrown out of the house when my mom found out or, you know, things were really tough at home. There was a lot of abuse. So I just got out of there. Those were people that, that he preyed on. Those were people that he identified and said, nobody's going to look for them. The world finds out about the murder, the arrest, 30 years past, you know, he's killed in jail. What made you uh, come out and write the book, Monster, the True Story of the Jeffrey Dahmer Murders? Because it came out, I don't know if you knew about the Netflix thing or Perfect Time, because I always, I'm a big reader. I try to read a book a week. That's always my goal every year. I go from uh, history to true crime to sports, and I haven't read a Dahmer book in, a, I don't think ever. I really don't. I know there was a comic book about him, which I didn't read. Mm-hmm. And then I saw your book, Monster, and I grabbed it, and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Right into the uh, Netflix thing, that everything became all Dahmer. What made you write the book 30 years later? I wrote the book because a publisher called and asked me to. Uh, they said, we would like you, you know, we're coming up on 30 years. I had done an article for a local uh, a local news magazine just kind of like at 25 years after Dahmer. And so 30 years. And what was happening was true crime was such a burgeoning genre on, on television. Uh, it's not like anything I ever watched when I was, you know, when I mm-hmm. was growing up, but everybody, you know, is talking about true crime and everybody, and, and it's getting the highest ratings of any shows out there. So, and the books about true crimes are, are becoming very popular. So they asked me if I would go back and go back 30 years, essentially, and find the people who were the principals in the case and talk to them about how the case affected them 30 years later, talk to them about what their memories are 30 years later. You know, I, I talked to Detective Dennis Murphy, and this is, I mean, really, this is why I, I love i love cops. I can't help myself. Um, not that I have to, but I, you know, I, I can't help it. Um, and then I marry a guy who runs a Harley dealership. It has nothing to do with law enforcement, <laughs> except he does all the police fleet bikes. So now he's the one who knows all the cops, and I'm, you know, just the girl that wrote about the creepy guy. Um, but... Uh, the 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 act of going back and asking people how did you you know how did you feel Dennis Murphy the detect one of the two detectives that got the confession from Dahmer he said you know Annie it's abs- it's it's the case I'm known for sure he said but it wasn't the toughest case he said it's, it wasn't a tough case at all the guy confessed he said I just I took notes you know that was that was what I did um. But Dennis happened to be at Columbia Correctional, the institution, the the prison where Dahmer was before he was murdered. And he was doing an interview with somebody else, with another another guy who was in prison there. He was doing some kind of an investigation. And he asked for the opportunity to be able to visit with Dahmer. And Dahmer said, yeah, you know, I'll see him. And Dennis asked him, and I thought this was really brave because, you know, it's just kind of question. And he said, Jeff, you know, if you... If, if you got out today, you know, would would you continue to pursue the the kinds of activity that you were pursuing when, you know, way back when? And Dahmer, without hesitating, said, absolutely. He still had the urges. He still had the desire to try and find that perfect 
I don't want to say that perfect partner because he wasn't looking for a partner. He was looking for somebody that he could dominate. He was looking for somebody that he could maybe turn into some kind of like a zombie. So he'd have the company, but he didn't, he wouldn't have to answer to anybody. He wouldn't have to, to be subject to anything anybody else wanted. Um, so, but when Dennis told me that I, I really affected me. I thought, wow, that's, that is something so much for, you know, for rehabilitation, I suppose. But, um, he, uh, when I heard Dahmer was murdered in prison, that was, uh, that was in 94. So that was only a couple years after he was incarcerated. And what was interesting about that is that he absolutely knew. He said, once they mix me with the general population, I'm done. I'm done. And uh, and so he was, you know, he was murdered in prison. Something interesting about Dahmer's murder, because I went through, I was the first person in like however many millions of years, uh, 30 years later, to go back to the, the, the place where they're keeping all of the evidence from Dahmer's murder in prison. I was the first person that asked if I could see it. So I went back and I'm looking at the crime scene photos and uh, one of the, 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 the people that I was, uh, that I was talking with at the sheriff's office said, you know, cause this is, again, it's why I love you guys. He's looking at the pictures and he says, look how, cause Dahmer was murdered with another, uh, another guy in prison, Jesse mm-hmm. Anderson, Jesse Anderson had murdered his wife. He was a white guy, murdered his wife. And then studied the Charles Stewart case from Boston and told the police when they responded that two black guys did it. That was his quote. Mm-hmm. And the police didn't believe him from the from the get go. So there was no turning upside down of, you know, of, of the of the city of Milwaukee looking for two non-existent people. But what's interesting about it is, can you think of two people that were more hated in that prison than those two guys? So the two highest risk prisoners in the institution are cleaning a bathroom together. I mean, you know. We can all I'm we can all read between the lines on that one. Just yeah, and I mean the way that, you know, the way that the corrections officer slammed the door in my face when I showed up at the double wide. Hey, just asking, <laughs> what happened? Um, so that was, uh, but but thirty years later to kind of look back at all of that, I did go back to some of the people who had worked as corrections officers. They're still not saying anything about. You know, and, and and I don't think I have seen, I've been to a lot of crime scenes. Five of you guys can't decide where to go to lunch together. <laughs> so I'm not a real big fan of the conspiracy. Like we're all going to get together and we're going to get, you know, we're going to have Dahmer killed and we're all going to, I just, I think that sometimes it's, it is just a completely, I think that it was allowed to happen. I always have, uh, that his murder was allowed to happen. Um, but I don't think there was any planning. I mean, Christopher Scarver, the man who killed Dahmer and Jesse Anderson, you know, I, I don't know that he that he did much more than just see that the two of them are in the bathroom alone doing a cleaning job. He grabs a barbell from the gym, comes in and beats the two of them to death. But what one of the detectives from the sheriff's office showed me when I was looking at the crime scene photos is he said, notice how Jesse Anderson's blood is everywhere and it's it's all over and jeffrey dahmer there's like a bloody handprint that was dahmer's he said jesse anderson fought for his life he said dahmer didn't and i thought that was i thought that was telling i thought that was interesting uh because there's a there's a a feeling that when serial killers are arrested that 
it's kind of a ah, it's kind of a relief in certain ways. And that's and then and Dahmer spent the next, you know, weeks calling Dennis Murphy and Pat Kennedy, these two detectives, like out of bed at home and whatever hour of the morning. Hey, I remembered another one. I mean, that's that's why Dennis laughs to this day. He's like, we didn't do it. We took we took notes. We wrote down everything he said. Um, but uh, but that was that's why I go back 30 years is how did the case affect everyone? And and I was I was fascinated by that. The prosecutor, Mike McCann, went back and talked to him. Deeply religious man. Deeply, deeply religious. Went to church every single day, except during the trial, the three weeks of the trial, he did not go to church. He said he just couldn't balance those two things. So he didn't go to church when when the trial was going on. But to this day, Mike McCann, who is now in his 80s, he says, Annie, this is this is the danger. This is the danger of having dirty thoughts. This is the danger of, and I mean, he was a zealot, man. You know, he was really, he was prosecuting this case because he really believed, and he believed from the beginning. He never said Dahmer was crazy or ill or insane or anything. He always held that Dahmer was just pure evil, and the jury believed him. 30 years later, and when you bring up the Jeffrey Dahmer thing, two things everyone says. Oh, that's a dude that ate, that ate everybody, right? He was a cannibal. And the other thing is, you know, two cops have walked him back and let him go. You have gotten a lot of flack, and a lot of flack lately. You really have. Uh, John Balzerak and Richard. It was uh, John Balzerak and Joe Gabrush. And I try not to to mention their names only because these two guys have suffered unimaginably oh. over, over the years. Um, I'm still in touch with Joe. Uh, Joe and I still, still talk. And I always offer him the opportunity. I said, if you want to say something... I'm here. I mean, I'm here if you want to, if you want something out there, I'm the guy that can help you do that. And he's just like, Jeffrey Dahmer ruined my life, Annie. And, you know, every time there's a book or a series, he always says to me, I got to, I got to block you on my social media for a little while. I can't, I can't be seeing that in my feed all the time. Um, But, you know, at the risk of, of being thought to be an apologist for the police, I will tell you, I will tell you this, you know, in the, in the short time that we, that we have here, I will tell you that these two officers were called to a report of a, of a, a boy running up an alley naked and bleeding. That was the report from a woman who lived in the apartment building next door, Glenda Cleveland. The officers show up by the time they show up, Connor X sent some phone the young man that 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 was running up the alley was now seated on the tailgate of the ambulance with one of those um that looks like aluminum foil mm-hmm. those blankets you know around him and the uh the officers are just arriving and they're kind of trying to talk to him but what they don't know is he's already drugged all right he's Dahmer's already drugged him but he's getting careless so this is toward the end of Dahmer's spree this is in the in 2 months before he's caught so he's getting careless and he didn't drug Conorak enough. So the kid is sitting in the back of the ambulance and Dahmer shows up. He had gone out to get more beer because he thought that he, the kid had passed out. He's coming back with the beer. He sees the cops. And I want to tell you, calm as can be. There's no panic. There's no, oh, my God, the police are here. What am I going to do? And he walks up to the police and he does the, hey, officers, what's, you know, what's going on? Oh, that's my boyfriend, Jim. 
he's he's a little drunk and you know i was i had put him to bed i thought he was going to be okay but you know he obviously got up and and ran there was according to um the 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 far the, the paramedics that were on the scene there was no visible blood on on this on this kid now i i'm going to believe them because you know it's it's not it's not like the fire department to stand up and say, oh, no, it was, you know, and, and, and corroborate what we say, right? Oh, it's a joke for all of your fire listeners. Um, but, uh, but the, uh, so, you know, the, 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 the kid is sitting there and this is a calm, cool guy who walks up to these officers in a neighborhood that is arguably crazy town. And uh, the officers, so the officers go one more step. They say, well, he said, I'll just take him back upstairs to my apartment. And the officers say, you know, hey, mind if we go with you? So that's important. The officers accompanied Dahmer back to his apartment with Conorak. And when those officers walked in the front door of Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment, what did they see? They saw what I saw. They saw a little railroad kitchen, um, a you know, a furnished living room. They saw Conorak's clothes folded neatly on the corner of the couch, and they saw Polaroids, because remember, Jeffrey Dahmer invited these men to his home with the promise of, I'll give you money if you let me take naked pictures of you. And then later it would be, I'll give you money if you have sex with me. So the there were there were naked pictures, very sexualized photographs of Conorak, Polaroids, and Dahmer shows them to the officers. So what what would the public have us do? What the officers don't know is that one of Dahmer's victims is decomposing in the next room, laying on the bed. But where was the probable cause to say, you know what? Something isn't right here. Do you not think that these two officers wish that that's the way that it would have been? Do you don't you think that these two officers whose lives truly were mm -hmm. were ruined by by this case? Don't you think they wish they would have said, you know, something just doesn't feel right. Because Dahmer was that crafty. He was that good. He was a master manipulator. And he manipulated everybody from the judges in the criminal justice system to his probation officer to these two officers that night. So what would the public have them do? Go to a judge and say, I need, we need a search warrant. Ask Dahmer for consent to search his apartment. And he says, no then what's the PC to go back or what's the probable cause to go back and say, ah, you know, we're going to take a look anyway, because there was nothing. And the story is told so many times with a different viewpoint than the one that says, did, did these officers do the right thing? They'll say, of course we did. And of course we, we, we missed it, but they missed it. There wasn't this craven disregard because they thought they were dealing with a gay couple. There wasn't this uh, desire to believe the white guy as opposed to believing, you know, other people in the neighborhood. But that has become the narrative. And that is very unfortunate. And it's really unfortunate for uh, law enforcement in the city because they didn't they didn't deserve that label. One thing I, that never was uh, 
you know, delved into. EMS, obviously, they were there first with him. Did they deem him okay? You can go back. And I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. No, but, no. But, but like EMS is there, and obviously, they're the experts. And did they say, you know what, he can go back? They didn't see any holes on him, no blood. Yeah, maybe this kid just is drunk. Get out of here. So they were okay with it also, right? Like him leaving. There was no objection. The the, the EMS guys, I think, you know, kind of look at the cops and it's like, what are you guys going to do? It's like, oh, let's, you know, because why do we want to take, well, you know what? I'm picturing somebody listening to this who doesn't do what you mm-hmm. do for a living, right? And they're going to say, why didn't they check him out and just take him to the hospital and just, you know, it's, it is so easy to look at that incident with the prism that we have now. But this was a place where there was so much violent crime. It was so busy. These guys are going from assignment to assignment to assignment. This is one where it looked like it could be taken care of in a very, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a safe fashion. Okay, the guy is drunk. What are they supposed to do? Say, you know what, we should check his head to see if Dahmer's drilled a hole there. Or maybe he's not drunk. Maybe he's been drugged. But the minute that the officers left that apartment, Dahmer killed, you know, killed Conorak. I want to tell you this also, that I saw the photographs of Conorak from that night. Nobody wants to hear this because they've spent all this time showing Conorak and they've got like his fourth grade picture or something that that they've been showing. Conorak didn't look like a 14-year-old kid. All right. He looked like an adult male. I saw the photographs the night that these officers were looking at him. This isn't some little boy that looks like, you know, that looks like your, you know, your little boy. This is a this is a kid who is working the street and he ends up with Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, it's it's not a nice thing to have to say. I know it hurts the family every time somebody talks about it. It certainly hurts the family every time I talk about it. But it is it is the truth. There were even detectives that saw the pictures that Dahmer had taken that night. Um, They had seen the pictures Dahmer took that night and they went to the chief's office and they said, chief, look at look at what this kid looks like this. There's no way this kid is 14 years old. No way. And, you know, look at this. We can't you know, we can't fire these. You know, and the chief was so quick to fire these guys. and the, the chief wouldn't listen. The chief wouldn't listen. And I only heard that story when I went back for the 30-year review. I only heard that from one of the detectives who was there and said, Annie, we went to the chief. We had that picture, that Polaroid. And we said, chief, is this, does this look like a 14-year-old kid to you? Because you want to see, what did the, what did the officers see that night? That's the only way we can... See what they saw that night. So it was much easier to feed those two officers to an angry public that's upset that a serial killer was running around the city. It's the only way I I think that they thought that they could appease the public. And uh, again, those those two guys, they got their jobs back eventually. Uh, Joe didn't go back. Joe was like, yeah, I'm done with that. And he went on to have a very... Uh, a, a very uh, decorated career uh, in another law enforcement agency here, became a police chief in one of our small municipalities, but he will forever, he, he can't say his name. Oh. Um, John Balzerzak took his job back. He came back and became president of the union. Um, and he ran on, Hey, I know what it's like to, you know, get railroaded. Um, 
And then he retired. And then the news media did a story about his retirement, which kicked up everything all over again. He didn't want the story out there, but, you know, people can't help themselves. One more so. thing about you with the Netflix uh, show, Conversations with the Kill, a Jeffrey mm -hmm. Dahmer tapes. You were in the thing, my pal Annie. What yeah. made you want to come out and do that show? And what were you happy with it? Because I loved it, how the director perfectly weaved the conversation, the Dama audio. It was like masterfully, mm -hmm. artfully done. Were you happy with that? Or were you like, oh, I signed up for this and I'm not happy with it? Uh, I was, you know, I've done a number of those. And there have been times when I just like banged my head on the wall and said, I wish I wasn't part of that. But this wasn't one of those. First of all, Joe Berlinger has a very, very, uh, just a, a, a strong, a, a good reputation for doing these documentaries. I'd seen what he'd done with Ted Bundy. Uh, I thought the Bundy tapes was a, was a very well done, uh, very, very well done series. Um, you know, the, I, I thought he did a great job. So I trusted him. Uh, but I also, you know, I did a lot of my own investigating just to make sure. Here's what I didn't know. What I didn't know is that Dahmer's lawyer at the time, Wendy Patricus, who was one of Jerry Boyle's assistants, I had no idea she'd been recording him. Nobody really knew that she had been recording him. Nobody knew. I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of defense attorney shows up the first night that the boss calls and says, "Hey, we got a guy who, you know, who, who was killing a lot of people, maybe, you know, cannibalism." I mean, you know, I don't know what defense attorney walks in and records the guy because you don't want that on tape. No, never, anywhere. never. Um, but yet she did. And and those those tapes I never. I was never told that those tapes were going to were going to be part of the the series. Wow. But I mean, I'm a, look. I I have all kinds of feelings about that line. Like, is that okay or is that not okay? Not not my not my thing to to be upset about. I came on there and they did what I had asked, which was please allow me to tell the story of the police, and please allow me, even though even if you want to have 28 other people on there saying, ah, nah, she's a homer for the cops, what. But I wanted I they 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 allowed me to to do that. They also made me look really fabulous. Um, I mean, they just like a giant powder puff smacked me in the face. I mean, it was oh, it was terrific. It was just great. I feel bad for people who see that and they're like, oh, we want to meet her. And then no. I show up and it's like, wait a minute. And I'm like, no, I you know I ate her. Okay, so that's just what that happened. Um, but no, I was very surprised to find out that there were tapes. Uh, and, and that, that was a big part of that, uh, of the surprise for me, but I'm always very clear to tell people that I had nothing to do with, with those tapes. I'm, I was invited to tell the story and if they're going to tell the story anyway, I want to be part of, of telling, telling that story. I had no clue how many people were going to see this thing. Also, I had no clue that Ryan Murphy's series was going to be called Monster. I mean, I, you know. That's why when I heard Monster, when I heard it, I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, Annie just hit the jackpot, Ryan oh. Murphy with her because he, he stole an Emmy a book. I'm like, this is, yeah. it must have been, been good for the book, though. It had to be. We'll find out. I mean, you know, the it, it's it's easier to hijack an LL aircraft than it is to find out how much you made on a book. So I'm still <laughs> kind of trying to figure that out. But, uh, you know, look, it's it's Jeffrey Dahmer, not Harry Potter. So, you know, I'm managing expectations on that. But what what makes me happy is that if 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 it does sell a lot of books, people are getting that story the way that I wanted to tell it. And it is of all of the dramatizations of all of the books 
that people did. I'm the only local reporter that wrote a book on it. Everyone else was from somewhere else and got, they, they actually gathered like my clippings and, <laughs> and made a quickie book. And I'm like, wait a minute, how does that work? But uh, I have, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I want that part of the story to be heard, even though I know that it it people just are going to say, well, she works with law enforcement, so she's going to take their side. And it really isn't about that. It's about trying to lay out that story so that people understand that, you know, 30 years ago in a Midwestern city where we had, you know, it was the it was the height of um, of the AIDS epidemic. It was you know, it was the height of crack cocaine and, you know, the, the, the people were living very secret lives. It's not like it is today. It just isn't. Nobody's having a parade. All right. I mean, it was, it was very, very different. And that's what I struggle with is when people want to talk about this case, they're using the lens of today and you can't do that. You got to say where was this midwestern city in the late eighties and early nineties when this was going on? I kept up over an hour of your time, and I know you like going out at night. You're a party person. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Absolutely. Oh my god, it's like a game show. Sure. Yes. Are you ready to go? I, you and you and I are at a bar here in New York City. Who's hmm. the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? You want to impress everybody? Be like, I can text who, and they'll text me back. Like a name dropping wow. right here. Boy. Um, Joe Berlinger. That's a good. Okay. I like, I like that one. That was a good answer. Wow. Good. Okay. How about this? Last show you binged watched. Oh, uh, Yellowstone. My wife is obsessed with that show. Okay. Completely. And we want you all to be ripped. <laughs> we want you all to be ripped. We don't care what you have to do. We will buy you all the clothes. We're going to make you wear the glasses. We want you all to be ripped. We do. I know you're a true crime author. I have a lot of true crime authors on here. Favorite true crime book besides, of course, Monster. Oh, Stranger Beside Me, Anne Rule. That's I like mean, one. It's... That's one of the three or four Holy Grail ones. It really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Definitely. Although, if you're, if you're, you know, you are a reader. So I did something that I almost never do, and Ooh. that is that I ordered um, the new James Patterson book that he wrote with Mike Lupica. And I, at this moment, I can't believe I can't remember the name of the book. It has the, it, the title has the word wolf in it, but it is, it's, you know, murder and sports. I mean, come on. Is it, wait, is it the, not the Aaron Hernandez one, is it? No, 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 this is, and it's not a, it's, it's fiction. It's fiction. Okay. And it, you it, did you read it yet or not yet? No, I've got it. I haven't even broken the binding open yet, but that's my, that's going to be my weekend, my weekend read. Okay. How about this? So First we'll time you saw someone reading your book, you did what? Oh boy. I do remember seeing somebody wearing like a t-shirt, which I thought was kind of crazy. And it was in an international airport. Cause I do most of my, my work now I do abroad and yeah. you know, I, I remember it, it, Germany, they love, I mean, they, <laughs> they love Dumber. I'm trying to remember if I've, I mean, I remember when the book first came to the house and I was just apoplectic about it. Um, but I can't say I, I I can picture somebody reading my book. It's not like, you know, the fantasy of seeing somebody sitting on the train, right? And like everybody in the row is reading it. Um, but I do, uh, I, I have caught people talking about the case when they hear I'm from Milwaukee 
And then I just kind of sit and I, <laughs> I lie and wait, <laughs> see what they say. I don't think this is going to apply to you because a lot of my guests are athletes. So I always ask them, but I'm going to ask you, maybe you have one. How do you know uh, I'm not an athlete? I don't. I'm, I, you know, I just stereotype. That was that wasn't nice. Just uh, man, oh man, just like those guys in the newsroom when I that's wear it. leather um, pants. How about this coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Maybe it's something from the case. Maybe it's an old newspaper. Coolest piece of memorabilia. It doesn't have to be from Dahmer. Just any piece yeah. of memorabilia you own. You know, I I wish that I wish that it wasn't a Dahmer thing, but it is. It's the front page. It's the actual front page framed from the day that I broke the story. Wow. And across the top, it says body parts litter apartment. And I have a solo byline on there with which if you're a reporter, I mean, that's just like the coolest thing in the whole world. Um, when I sold my old house, the real estate agent was like, you can't have that hanging in the living room. It's not okay. Um, but I think that that probably is because, again, it's not, you know, it's not about the case. It's about that that was such an accomplishment to to have done that. So I, I, I think that's probably the the coolest, uh, the coolest piece of memorabilia. Every time I, I travel somewhere, uh, I've been working uh, on and off the last year in Albania. And what I did was I cre I helped them build a public information office for their special prosecutor who's going after organized crime and corruption in their government. And they give me, uh, they gave me a, a coin. You know, we all have coins. We all give them away. You don't really think twice about it because everybody's got one. But this meant a lot to me because they were, this was a hard, this was one of the places where I walked in. Um, and and there have been a number of places I've traveled to where I walked in. It's, I'm a civilian and I'm a female. So, hi, I'm here to work with the police. It's like, oh, look, your little sister's here. Mm -hmm. um, but when I when I mentioned the Dahmer book, it kind of gives you, it gives you street an Street cred, really. It gives you street yeah. cred. It does. So anytime I'm accepted by one of those groups where people said, oh, it's going to be hard. And I walked in and, you know, brought the book up or, you know, I, and I always have one in my purse, yeah. always have one in my purse. And then when I travel, I take a bunch in my carry on. So the people at TSA are like, wow, <laughs> what is going on? And then I flip it over. And of course, I look like, you know, death when I'm traveling. So there's that great Photoshop picture on the back. And I'm like, oh, I wrote this. And they're like, no, nah, who's that? Oh. I mean, it's just, you know, but no, that's the, that's probably the great, the the coolest piece of memorabilia. I really don't save stuff. I, I'm not a, not a saver. No, nor am I. And I'll tell you why that might've been one of the best answers ever, because the one thing I have, I collect old newspapers or newspapers oh. when they the Yankees win the World Series or just crazy newspapers. And every you know few months, I'll buy a random one. Babe Ruth's mm -hmm. last game. So for you having that, that is like, for me, I'm like, newspaper, oh, I love yeah. it. Oh, and, sure. Packers win the Super Bowl. Oh, wait, no. Well, no, no, let's not be That's silly. Not, wait, one last one. Um, Opie and Anthony is a famous radio show here in New York. And uh, Detective Kennedy did like an hour interview with him oh. long, long time ago. Yeah. First of all, he is he was hilarious. Like, he walked in. Oh, Absolutely. I'll email you the clip. He's just he just crushes it. But he actually said something that was weird at the end. He said that um when he heard Dama was killed, mm -hmm. emotions went through his body because he was yeah. he knew the person. Listen, obviously he was a killer. He was this. You've been connected with him for so long during the thing, even though it wasn't personal. I know he called you and stuff. Did you have any emotions when he when he died when he was killed? I think that the sadness I felt about hearing that was that now he would never be studied. 
because he wanted to be studied. He said he wanted to be studied. Now, who's to say that he wouldn't have manipulated every shrink and forensic psychiatrist that he talked to? You know, who's to say that that he might not have, you know, done that, right? Um, but I'm I'm sad that that he couldn't have been studied more. That but but he was, you know, he he was pure evil, and you know, I I didn't shed a tear for him. I I I thought about the the opportunity to study the mind of a serial killer like Dahmer. But again, that's assuming that he would have cooperated and he wouldn't have BSed everybody that it was trying to talk to him. Because let's not forget, he was a master manipulator. He was an astute liar. So who's to say if that would have even been possible? Right. And he, this was a blast. I can't tell you how much fun I had. Oh. I am an obsessive traveler. My goal is to visit every country in the world. I'm in the mid-90s. But this year, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to a bunch of countries, but I will be going to Milwaukee to watch a uh, Brewers game. So when I get out there, I will hit you up. We'll have some beers. You better. I and promise I'm, you. I come to New York fairly often. I speak at John Jay College. So, and then I, my best friend lives out on Long Island. So we, uh, her husband's retired FDNY. So I got to mock him like mercilessly. <laughs> then there's a whole Giants Packers thing that I can't even get into. Um, but no, I would, I would like that because I, I think that what I, what I collect as I, as I, you know, get older is, is, you know, people, I love to hear other people's stories and I, you know, and the opportunity to, to talk to you, I would like to hear all about, you know, how you got permission to do the podcast. That could have been fun. It is a wild story. (laughs) I will tell you that, but, and also uh, there's a few bars in the city that give me a private floor. So Ah. what we can do is we'll set it up. We will have some, I know you're from the cream city. You enjoy beer. We'll have some drinks. We'll have some good conversation, but plug where everyone can buy this amazing book. Monster's the best. Where they can follow you on the Twitter and the social. Give the plug for everything because you are absolutely awesome, Annie. Oh, you are so kind. I really, I appreciate this, that you shared all this time with me and and this, it it means a lot. And it means a lot that I get to tell that part of the story uh, that's most important to me, Mm -hmm. which is the, which is the law enforcement role in that case. It's, it's the part that, that people have not heard. So I'm grateful to you for that. Um, on uh, on Instagram, I'm um, Ann Schwartz nine one one, of course. Um, on uh, on I'm trying to remember all these things. Uh, on Twitter, uh, also Ann Schwartz nine one one, and uh, you know those are good. I I just I'm not very good with the messages. I can never figure it out. I. A friend of mine said, if they do a movie, Jennifer Coolidge has to play you. I said, oh, my God, stop it. <laughs> I mean, like now, yes, but not back then. Back then, I want it to be like Christy Brinkley or some, you know, somebody else. Well, you you plug your socials. Plug the, plug the book, Monster. Go to Amazon. Oh, I'm sorry. Go oh, everywhere and buy her book, Monster. So it's one of the best uh, true crime books you've ever read. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Monster, the true story of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. It's available on Amazon. You can get it on, uh, it, oh, if you get the audio book, I read it. So it's like you want to just yank your headphones <laughs> out of your head because I'm in the car with you and you're like, she won't get out. Um but I, I read the book, um, and uh, also Barnes and Noble uh, has the uh, every all their stores and their online has it. Every anywhere that you buy books, you can you can absolutely pick it up, and uh, and you can you know it, it's not. I'm happy to send you the links if you have a website. You can put that up there. God love you. Um, but uh, but I appreciate the time, and I appreciate anybody 
that takes the time to to read it because it was 30 years of my life and continues on today, right? This was a blast. I feel like I have a new friend. I'm very excited to share some beers with you, some conversations, and we'll be in touch, Annie. And I'll get you decent seats to that Brewer game. Don't be sitting with the Philistines. I'll help you out. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'll see you soon, okay? (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Thanks for all the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.